The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 18 today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have them for free. Uh, They're in the back. If you go out through the door there in the lounge, um, you can ask an usher or hospitality folks, and they'll get you one. We'll give that to you. You can take it home. We want everyone that wants to have a Bible to have a Bible for sure. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you right now or an app, uh, you can follow along. The screen's behind me. We'll have the scriptures so we can all read God's Word together. Uh, Tonight, we are going to continue in our series. We've been focusing on the miracles of Jesus and what they teach us about our God. Uh, And our main focus in doing that is to learn about the character and nature of our Creator. All of the Bible is about God. He's the main character. But we have also observed some profound insights into how we can and should relate to Him through these miracles. Uh, In Colossians and a couple other places, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus was an exact representation, an expression, and a reflection of God the Father. Jesus said that many times himself. And so we can see by the way Jesus deals with these situations, uh, the exertion of power, compassion in dealing with people that were in need of miracles, uh, we can learn a lot about God, who he is and how he would go about things. So that's our great endeavor. It's been awesome so far and I expect today will be no different. Uh, Actually, as we get into this set of verses, we're going to encounter two miracles in this package. So you get a two for one today, praise God. Uh, The events here... Uh, with these two miracles, are so closely intertwined that it makes a lot more sense to study them together than to try to pull them apart. So we're going to do that. Let's read Matthew chapter 9 and uh, verse 18. We'll go to verse 25 together, okay? While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in a noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Praise God for his word. Side note there, it's not in my notes. Those guys laughing at Jesus just file that under bad idea always. <laughs> Should not do that. That is not a proper response to the King of Glory, right? Amen. Uh, so if, if you've been keeping up with this series, you have likely noticed a pattern emerging. Uh, almost every week as we study these miracle accounts together, we've taken time towards the beginning to address what appear to be discrepancies or differences in the details between the Gospels. Uh, This is partially because the miracles of Jesus are an important part of telling the story of his mission and ministry uh, while he walked among us. So that means that uh, many of the miracles are recorded in several of the first four books in the New Testament that we refer to as the Gospels. And so maybe more so than anything else, the miracles Jesus performed get recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and it's mixed up, right? Sometimes two of them, three of them sometimes all four of them, uh, but th- these, these miracle events were big enough uh, and a big enough part of the story that they were recorded in several places, and that sometimes opens up the potential for what looks like discrepancies. And I just want to say to you, um, if, if you're anticipating what's next, which is me addressing a potential discrepancy in this text, congratulations, you're right, you've gotten good at anticipating where I'm headed. Let me just say, though, let me, let me submit to you this idea. If, if your thought about that is, oh man... Hopefully it doesn't take too long to get done with that and then get to the rest of it, right? I, I would just submit to you the, the importance of this. And, and, and I promise, I know, um, talking about the potential of two texts not lining up and, and what maybe is the reason for that is not one of those praise banner, hallelujah, amen, typically sets of verses or 
like a point of logic to work out, right? However, if we are committed to this mission of making disciples, if we are committed to going into this world and preaching the gospel, part of what we're going to have to do is we're going to be coming from the launching pad of the truth of the word. Because if we don't do that, where are we coming from? We, we really have nothing to stand upon. And so, those of us that really love Jesus and care about his mission, we have to care about this idea that the Bible can be trusted. Because for a lot of folks, I don't know how many conversations you have like this. I promise you, I have a lot where people will say, yeah, the, the historical character of Jesus or those stories are cool and, and there's probably some moral lessons from that, but the Bible's so full of contradictions, I don't know if I could believe it. And every time I hear that, uh, my heart kind of sinks into my stomach a little bit uh, be, because it's a real bummer that that's become a widespread belief. And a lot of times it just comes down to laziness that, or, or sometimes it's an unwillingness for us to take a little bit of time to work through these things. And I want to also just say this. I don't expect you to remember every single issue even that I brought up through this series uh, or the answers to them. But here's what I would, my great hope is, as we do these things, as we don't just skip over them, which is, would be tempting to do, right? I could have read this text and you would never have known, most of you, that there's a potential discrepancy. You wouldn't have probably connected the dots. I'm going to point it out to you. I'm going to make my job harder and show you where there's a difficulty and then we're going to talk about it. It'd be a lot easier not to do that, and it might even seem like more fun. However, if we care about this mission and we care about being able to answer honestly uh, people's concerns, my great hope is not necessarily that you memorize all this, but if nothing else, that a confidence grows in you. That when somebody says to you the Bible's full of contradictions, maybe you don't remember the details, but you remember, you know what? We studied the Bible together, and we brought up a bunch of these different uh, supposed contradictions, and it, it really wasn't that complicated most of the time to look at it and see, maybe there's another way to see that other than just assuming it means the Bible isn't what it claims to be, which is inspired by God. Okay? Is that all right? So I'm, I'm hoping you're excited. about. I'm coaching you into excitement about the next few minutes of looking at what some would say is an inconsistency and why maybe that's not even the best way to understand it. Okay? It's important for us to approach the Bible as the Word of God. It's described that way in 2 Timothy 3.16. Here's what that says. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The big key phrase there that I want to draw out is that it's inspired by God. We believe the Bible is inspired by God. Thus, it's authoritative. Thus, it's good in all the ways that um, it says there in 2 Timothy 3. So what that means is a faithful and orthodox approach to the Bible is to believe it is true and authoritative because God inspired it. Practically, okay, so that's kind of on, in the idea bucket, but practically this means it is not going to have errors or, or it's not going to contradict itself. And so the issue is, as I kind of already said, many people, people believe it does, and it's tragic. A bunch of people stay away from the beauty of the gospel because they heard someone say the Bible has contradictions, or they pointed out one of these things we're going to look at, and and somebody that maybe didn't understand or was unwilling to think about nuance of like historical context or language or even different perspectives of the writers uh, giving the account of the event, uh, because they're unwilling to look at those things, they just take it at face value and walk away saying the Bible there contradicted itself, I can't trust it. We believe God in his sovereign wisdom chose different men with different professions and experiences to record the life and ministry of Jesus, because it gives us a full and a more circumspect view of the events described. Matthew did see things different than Luke, right? And I'm glad, because he keyed in on things that maybe Luke would have missed, and vice versa. So we run into one of these differences here, so I'm going to point it out to you, okay? So uh, people smoother than me probably would have just went, went ahead, but I'm going to go ahead and put myself in the hot seat here. Here's, here's part of what people will say the issue is. Here's some differences. Matthew, first of all, doesn't give us the name of the official. Okay, Mark and Luke tell us his name is Jairus. Okay? Uh, Matthew also gives us a much more condensed version of these two miracles than either Mark or Luke. His is a very snapshot compared to the details they give. 
I would submit to you this is not surprising given that Matthew's a tax collector by trade. If you go back just a chapter or two, you'll see he was, Jesus walked by, he was in a tax collector booth, and Jesus said, come follow me, and he you know, put down his, his uh, cuneiform tablet, and off he went. So he was a tax collector by trade. Now, I, I don't think I'm stretching here to, so the modern-day equivalent, I think of like an accountant. This is somebody that was very numbers-oriented and whatnot. And I just want to say, and I really, really mean this, I love accountants, and I am so glad that God made some people to thrive on Excel spreadsheets and math equations and reconciling accounts. He did not make me that way, which is why I'm so thankful to God he made some people that way, right? Because um, that stuff, uh, I, I'd rather dig a hole and fill it back in personally than do any of those things. But uh, I, So I really love accountants. However, I personally know several accountants who are very like cut and dry and to the point. One of them specifically, like I have to many times ask them, can you, can you explain that in like human speak? Because I don't know what you just said, right? So sometimes accountants, they're, they're just to the point. <clears throat> and that's not a bad thing, right? That's good because sometimes people talking to me are like, hey buddy, could you get to the point, right? So, so the, a good blend there would be probably better. Uh, so it's not a bad thing most of the time, and I don't think it's a bad thing that Matthew is more to the point here in recording this miracle, but that, that succinct nature of, of reporting what happened can be mistaken for a discrepancy in the facts when it could be just as easily seen as a difference in how those facts were explained, okay? So here's the big issue. I know that was a lot of preface, okay? Here we go. M- Matthew says... In verse 18, uh, that, that the official says, my daughter has just died. Okay? If you go to Mark, when Jairus rolls up, he says, my daughter, can you please come? My daughter is at the point of death. Luke doesn't quote Jairus, but he explains in a narrative way that she was dying. So the issue here is with the tense. Matthew says she died, that Jairus said she died. Mark says she is at the point of death, or, you know, very close to death, but not dying, or not dead yet, it seems, and uh, Luke then reports it the same way. So, there's a couple ways to look at this issue, and, and <clears throat> it's a real thing. I think some people could too quickly dismiss, there is a difference here, even, even to the fact that in Mark and Luke's account, uh, Jesus agrees to go with Jairus, and then two uh, you know, he gets held up along the way by the woman with the issue of blood, and then two people come from Jairus' house and say she died. Okay, so there is something to be looked at here, and, and we got to think through, okay, so what could this be? Because the, the accusation is either Matthew's wrong or Mark and Luke are wrong, but either way, somebody's wrong, and, he, and what we have then here is not an inerrant authoritative scripture. Do you understand the problem? I, I want to make sure at least you understand the problem before I give you the, the potential solution. Okay, so there's that. So there are some scholars that say the Greek could go either way on those tense, the words about the tense, and so the issue of past tense died or present tense dying is a non-issue. The problem is there are some other scholars that would say it is an issue, and so we got to deal with it, and I think they're stretching maybe a little bit. Even if one insists that the Greek is definitive on this, and Matthew clearly used a different, very sure word for she died, and Mark and Luke She's dying. Uh, the reality is there's no way for us to know that uh, this man in his panic didn't utter both phrases during that exchange. So let me, let me just paint the picture. This guy is sitting there with his daughter who is taking her last breaths. He's panicking, and then he has this idea. There's a healer. And so he bolts to go find Jesus, right? So imagine the mind frame and, and, and the place he's in emotionally, okay? So... It's very possible. He runs up, falls to the feet of Jesus, and says, Jesus, my daughter is dead, or my, she's dying, or, you know, or he's not even really sure at this point, right? He, he heard, he's hearing her chest rattle or whatever that sounds like as he's leaving the room to go try to get Jesus. He could not even be sure necessarily where she's at at the moment. He could have said both. In, in the scramble to ask for Jesus' help, Matthew keyed in on the fact that he said she, she's died, Mark keyed in on the fact that she, he said she's dying. Now, I realize you don't have that in the text, and, and so you could, you could throw that in the conjecture bucket, but the, the whole point is we, there's no way to not know that. And so before saying, well, 
I know for sure that that's not the case, and thus the, one of these guys is wrong. There's, there's a lot of ways this could have gone. This was a dynamic situation with a very emotionally taxed guy uh, just trying to get Jesus to come help him because his baby's dying, and he's really struggling and hoping for help, right? So we can't be sure from the text why the initial description of the girl's condition is different, why Matthew said died, Mark said dying. There are definite possibilities, though, other than it being an error or a contradiction. In any case, there is perfect harmony in regards to the girl's condition upon Jesus' arrival. She was dead. Whether you look at Mark, Luke, or Matthew's account, by the time Jesus got on the scene, this girl had died. Okay? So that's, that's the big problem. And, and, and so somebody could, look at, somebody could look at that, and that's, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Throw away the whole rest of the Bible because you, you don't give any possibility for, you know, Matthew clearly, and, and if you look at, this is Matthew's style. Look at all the way he reports the miracles. Mark is always giving, and Mark and Luke both, if they all record the same miracle, they are always giving more detail. Matthew's very, to the, he's going to give you the pertinent facts. And so if, it's, if, if it's potential that Jairus did say both those things, Matthew doesn't even tell you that the servants came later. He, he skips that part. It's not a pertinent point to him. Here's what Matthew wants you to know. This guy came, asked for Jesus' help. His daughter was dead. Jesus went, touched this girl, and she's alive again, right? Like that's, he's getting you the here's, the, here's what you need to know, right? Mark and Luke, I'm glad, give us more detail, which I believe is a part of God's grand design and the way he breathed out his word for our benefit and so that we could know him and obey him. Amen? Amen. Okay, uh, so the first thing we're going to learn through the way Jesus deals with these situations is this. You can't put God in a box. First point we're going to draw from this. You can't put God in a box. Right here in immediate proximity, very close together, we have what should be a humbling lesson regarding the sovereignty of God. One woman is told directly, the woman with the issue of blood, is told directly that her faith made her well. Did Jesus say that to her? Right? She's reasoning in her mind. If I can get up and just touch the hem of his garment, she does that. Uh, Matthew doesn't give us these details, but the other accounts do, that, that Jesus turns and asks, who touched me? His disciples are like, Jesus, are you having a heat stroke? Like, everyone's touching you. What do you mean, right? He says, no power went out from me. He could tell. And he turns and he looks at her, uh, and he says, your faith has made you well. So he declares this to her, that her faith was, was a big, vibrant part of that healing taking place, okay? So you've got that. She's told that directly. And then the other girl that happens directly after that is dead. And so her faith had no part in the matter. You understand? You see the contrast there? One, Jesus looks dead in the eyes and says, your faith has made you well. The next one was dead and could not have participated with her faith in the miracle. We have, we have a difference. When we try to reduce the good and sovereign acts of God to a rigid form or a singular formula, we are falling prey to the temptation of attempting to restrain him so he is predictable. And we can believe that we've figured him out. God is not tame. We'd like him to be, but he's not. He's not domesticated in any way. And he's not going to always do stuff the way you think he should. Uh, even if your theology is airtight, <laughs> or you think it is. There is much debate over the nature of healing. Some teach that since Jesus told this woman, your faith has made you well, I've heard this said, then healing is always an issue of whether or not you have enough faith. I've heard this taught. That means if you have enough faith, you can always kind of claim your healing through faith-filled prayers uh, and positive confessions. Part of the issue with that, I would submit to you, first of all, is the fact that the girl that was dead had no faith. And you say, well, her dad did. Okay. But we're still talking about two different things. Jesus isn't dealing with the person directly. You see what I'm talking about? There's a difference there. And part of the problem with that idea or that approach is that it follows logically. If you have enough faith, you can always kind of claim authoritatively God to do exactly what you want him to do. Then if you do not receive physical healing, then you just didn't believe hard enough. 
That's, that's the conclusion you have to come to. That's problematic. Others, I've heard others teach things along the lines of they'll look at something like Jairus' daughter and they'll point out that her faith had nothing to do with her being raised from the dead. And so they will say healing is only ever a sovereign act completely divorced from the faith of the person receiving it. So they look at, they look at the example they like or they look at the example they like and then try to build a, a whole theological structure and system and put God in a box of this is how he does this thing. And I'm sure about it all the time. You see the problem with that? It's problematic. God doesn't, is not going to stay in your box. I don't care how hard you push. <laughs> he's coming out. He's, he's the king. He's God. He's sovereign. And I'm really happy about it. I hope you are too. Now, I know I, know I can see your faces. You guys forget that. Um, we, don't, we don't darken the thing so that you can hide. So I can see your faces. I know I'm, I'm you guys ever heard of cow tipping? I know I'm, I'm doing some sacred cow tipping for some of you, and I can see some wheels turning, but we got to deal with the t- text, man. We got to deal with the scriptures. God gave us this Bible to understand how he goes about things, right? And part of what we're learning here is maybe it's not as clean cut always as, as sometimes we think it is. This is good for us. Humility is good for us. Putting God back in a place of, of, of sovereignty instead of us is a good thing for us. So take a breath. Let's keep going, all right? I truly believe these events happen right next to each other, at least partially to put right in our faces the need for humility and the recognition that God is not tame or predictable and can't be reduced to our perspectives or our preferences. I think there's a lot of reasons why this happened exactly like it happened. There's some more contrasts here we're going to look at that are deep, and we're not in any way going to mine the bottom of this thing. However, uh, this, I believe, is part of what Jesus was doing, right? Because there's so many things people believed then. There's so many things we believe now that you can, you can find an example of God doing it a different way. And so you can do a couple things with that. You can start doing some exegetical gymnastics. What does that mean? Um, you, you, you start dancing around and figure out some way to kind of philosophically, well, that verse, you know, this or that and the other thing, and, and, and try to make it fit your belief system or your your kind of more strict, rigid interpretation of how God should go about things. Or, and I'm not advocating for some mysticism where it's this postmodern idea of, oh, you can't know anything about God, what he's going to do ever. He's told us very clearly what he's going to do in a lot of situations. But ultimately, it's, it's about getting to this place of being able to trust him above the specifics of trying to demand him do it your way or us demanding it, he does it our way. That's, that's just not the way God works. And we should be really glad about that because half the time, if we got what we wanted, it's not till later we figure out that that actually would have been really bad for us, <laughs> right? Because we don't always know what's best. Everyone swallow that, that big gulp of humility there. There we go. That's good for us. That's good. You're like, but you're supposed to put sugar with it. That helps it go down. No, I don't have any. I don't have a bag of sugar, man. I used it all. Let's give it to you straight, man, because I love you. So along that idea, so I'm saying to you, I believe Jesus, part of orchestrating this set of events to happen right next to each other, so close and kind of a part of, you know, this woman coming in the middle of, he's on his way to, to, to deal with this, uh, the, the, the synagogue official's daughter, right? Um, on the way to do that, this other situation happens. And so you'll, you'd have to do some weird jumping to pull these apart. This all kind of happened in the same event. I believe Jesus did that very intentionally. I think we also need to consider, so you can see the contrast between the way he deals and, and brings help and compassion to those two situations. But if you just go a chapter before, you'll see yet another variation where uh, the, the centurion asked Jesus to simply say the word and his servant would be healed. And in that situation, Jesus marvels at this guy's faith. He doesn't, what did, what did Jairus say? If you'll come and you'll touch her, if you'll come put your hand on her, I, I know she'll be well. What was the other lady saying? And she said in her mind, if I can just get to the hem of his garment and I can touch it, I'll be healed. The centurion came up and his faith was that if you'll just say it, I understand how all this works. I have soldiers under me. If you'll just say it from here, I already know it'll happen. And so look at the variance of faith in those situations. The, the, the widest contrast, I guess, being between the, the centurion who said, Jesus, just say the word, I know it'll happen, and the girl that was laying dead and thus couldn't exert any faith towards the situation, 
God brought answer, help, compassion to both of those. Right? Different. It's different. Also, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 that God did not heal him of some physical ailment that he calls a thorn in the flesh so that Paul would not become prideful. Now, I have heard, when I say exegetical acrobatics, this is an example of what that looks like. Well, maybe the thorn in the flesh wasn't really a physical ailment. Maybe it was a spiritual ailment. He said thorn in the flesh. He couldn't have been plainer about what was happening here. We don't know exactly what was going on, but there was something physical afflicting Paul. And, and here's the thing. People will try to act like Paul had bad theology about it. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Paul told you exactly why this happened. God revealed to him that he prayed multiple times, God, take this from me. This is difficult. This is hindering me. This hurts. This is hard. Whatever that thing was. And he said, but God did not do it. Jesus did not take that from me so that because of how much of the revelation of God and how much knowledge I had in him and how greatly he was using me, because of all that and the temptation for pride, he left me with this thorn in the flesh because that was what was best for me. Because if he had taken it, I would be tempted then to be prideful. And that would be far worse than this physical ailment. God doesn't fit in your box, friend. So just take it apart <laughs> and throw it away, okay? He, he is not tame. And it's very prideful for us to assume. We're, we're going to just totally figure out absolutely everything he's doing all the time, why he does it, and, and, and know exactly what he's going to do because our system or our whatever says so. We are tempted not only with healing, but with many things regarding what God does and how he does it to try to box him in to what we like or what we think we can fully understand. Oftentimes, I think the motive is even probably good. There's, there's a motive to want to understand and know God better and know from his word what it is he's doing or going to do in a given situation. We, we should have a thirst and a hunger and a motivation to know God more, and he's revealed much about himself in his word. But his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways, and there's going to be a cap. There's going to be an end to how far we can go in comprehending what he's doing in a given situation. I don't think you need another example if you would just look at the cross, right? All of the disciples were freaked out because as far as they could see and imagine and understand from their perspective, everything just went wrong. <laughs> everything just fell apart. The guy they left their whole livelihood to follow and was supposed to take out the Romans for them from their understanding just got crucified by the Romans. That's, it was in the L column for them at that point. They couldn't see. Even though they'd been told... <laughs> They couldn't quite grasp. Three days later, that L was going to the W column. Praise God. The reality is, friends, we like thinking we have God all figured out. And we don't like the feeling of uncertainty that can creep in if we are unsure how God will respond in a given situation. You understand what I just said? I'm going to say it again. The reality is we like thinking we have God all figured out. And we don't like the feeling of uncertainty that can creep in if we are unsure how God will respond in a given situation. The good news is, I'm not going to leave you there, okay? I know some of you are like, whoo, now what? The good news is you don't have to have God in a box to trust him. You don't have to. Instead of trying to reduce God to a list of predictable formulas or responses, we should turn our trust to his proven character and his unfailing promises. That's the big idea. I'm going to get even more practical than that. Then how do we pray, right? I hope you're asking that. I hope you've followed me along on this idea that God is not tame and predictable. He's not going to do exactly what you think he's going to do in any given situation. And he has the right to go whichever way he wants to go in a certain situation because he sees things we don't see. Amen to that. But then how do we pray? 
How do we approach situations of sickness or difficulty? What's a faithful way to approach that then? I think there's a lot to be understood out of an account in the book of Daniel. This is in the book of Daniel chapter 3. Let me read this to you. This is, this is the three Hebrew boys going in the furnace, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here's what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Why are they standing before him? This guy had built an idol to himself. He had a real delusion, God delusion. He thought he was the cat's meow, better than sliced bread, the bee's knees, all the things, right? Um, and so he builds this idol, says everyone's going to worship me. They're going to bow down before this thing. And these guys are like, nope, we are not going to do that. And he's like, well, then we're going to light the furnace and you're going in it. That's the backstory. Here we are. Here's their response. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Are you catching that? Are you understanding why I just read you that in the midst of the conversation we're having right now? The practicality of that and how you approach difficulty, affliction, tribulation, sickness, and all of it. I, I, hope, you, I hope you're seeing it. Practically, this means when we are sick, we should ask in faith for healing we should trust and believe God is completely able, and we should worship him if he heals us, and we should worship him if he doesn't, because whatever he does is right. That's where these guys were at. You have an idol, and you have a blazing furnace. We're not going to worship that idol we're going to take our chances with God because he's proven himself good and he's proven himself faithful and whatever he does. We believe he is mighty, well able to deliver us. You can throw us in that furnace and we won't burn. But guess what? Even if our God doesn't do that exact thing we know he's able to do, we're still his. We're still worshiping him. I submit that to you practically as the faithful way to approach these things. As the faithful way to deal with affliction, sickness, difficulty, tribulation, and all those, those things. God's character can be trusted. Do you see the difference, friend? I'm trying to get you from putting your faith in a narrative you, do, you spin up, right? Well, I, God's going to do this and this and this and this because I, th I think this is what would be good to happen. I'm trying to get you off of that because that leads to a whole bunch of disappointment and it leads, it's, it's just prideful. It can't be counted on. I'm trying to get you off of that and get your eyes on God. Get your eyes on Christ. Get your eyes on the perfect promises of God and how much he has proven his good character to us. Well, I don't, I don't, know, if I, I don't know if I believe his character that well. Well, that, then that's the problem. Okay, good, we found it. Let's deal with that, right? Let's go back to the scriptures. Let's, let's rehearse why it is God can be trusted. First and foremost, I would just take you by the hand and I would gently lead you to the foot of the cross and I would ask you to stare at that for a while to see the blood-stained timber that the Savior hung upon as proof that your God will do whatever is necessary for your best. And that might look different than what you understand it to look like. And I say praise Him because of it. We worship Him. We trust Him. And we know that whatever He does is right because He is good. And He is working all things for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. He's not working all things to exactly the way you think it should be because you're called, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I, I was trying to misquote a verse in the middle. I got all jumbled. It messed me up. That's good. I'm glad I can't misquote verses that good. Got, got tongue-tied trying. Okay. I, I just want to say as a caveat, I, I'm not trying to say that a lack of faith can never be the issue. Sometimes you may, sometimes a lack of faith could be a barrier to receiving some good thing from God. I want to make sure I say that. That's taught clearly in the scriptures. And so, but it's, it's, it's an overreach and it's unbiblical completely to say every time God doesn't do exactly what I'm expecting him to do, that, that's because of a lack of faith. No, it might be that God's got something better than what you exactly expect him to do. He might know more than you about it. Shocker, right? Right, okay, amen. Second thing we're gonna see out of this. 
First is that you can't put God in a box, so don't try. Second, we see here what I believe to be the most crucial lesson that every earthly father must learn. It's Father's Day, and there's some beautiful instruction in here for us uh, that would seek to follow Christ as we teach, train, and love our kids. Jairus models the most important aspect of being a godly father, and here's what it is. Humbly realizing we don't have all our children need and getting them connected to the one who does. There's a lot of cool picture that can be drawn out of the actions of this father in this story. But I think it can all be summarized and I think the most important lesson we could draw out of it as those that would seek to be dads they would follow after the mold of Christ is, is this humble understanding he clearly has. And, and pride could stop him. And, and here's something you got to understand. This guy's a synagogue official. Okay? So that's a, mod, that's a, that's a modern-day equivalent cl- loosely to a pastor. He, he's in charge of that, that synagogue. He's making sure the services are going off without a hitch. He's, to some degree, responsible for the facility. So he's kind of a, a mashup between an elder and a deacon, the way we would see it today in, in in the New Testament church, but this is a Jewish synagogue official. This is a religious man. This is a guy that's supposed to have some authority. He's supposed to have, he's got his stuff together, right? People respect him. He had to come to a point of realization that he didn't have what his daughter needed, and he had to love her enough to not care about what it looked like For him to run out here to this healer that all the rest of the Jewish synagogue officials and the Pharisees and Sadducees all are not real happy with, right? Because people are listening to him and they don't like that. They feel their own authority challenged. What kind of love does this guy have for his daughter to disregard all that because he heard maybe this guy has the power to do something about this? He's got no guarantee that after this he's not kicked out of the synagogue. For sure. This could go real bad for him. But he's thinking about one thing in this moment. My baby's dying. I don't have what it takes. I got nothing for this situation. So I'm going to go find somebody that does. And dads, I just want to say to you, to the degree that we get that will be the degree to which we will have success in pointing our kids towards Christ. Because there is a great temptation as a father to want to, because, look man, I want my kids to admire me. I want my kids to, to love me and I want them to look up to me. But I only want that to happen to the degree that is healthy. And, and I have to admit to you, there, that line can get blurry. Sometimes I, I, I said, I asked Max this week in the car, we were driving, and, and I just said to him, I don't think I've ever asked him this before. I said, Max, what do you want to be when you're as big as dad? I, I didn't know if he would know what, you know, he's almost four. I didn't know if he would catch, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? if he even knew what that meant. So so he thinks of things in terms of size, right? Food portions, people, like he's, that's, that's his world. So so I said, when you're as big as dad, what do you want to, what do you want to be? And uh, he said, I want to be you. I'm like, I'm going to buy you so much candy, dude. (laughs) But it did, man. It it melted my heart, but I got to be careful, right? I got to be careful that that doesn't in, in, a, in a real sneaky way, caused me to be prideful. I'm, I must be doing a pretty good job as a dad if he wants to be like me. What I need to be real concerned about, what I need to care about most, is realizing how completely insufficient I am and how much I am in need of the help of Christ to raise my kids and have any hope of them being what it is God made them to be. And I need to, like Jairus, understand, I, don't, I, I, I have really nothing as far as the tools required to build and shape a human into the potential that God has for them. I can play a part in that, but I've got nothing in and of myself to bring to that. I, all of what I'm going to need to even play a part in that process is going to come by the anointing and the help of Jesus. I have to be humble enough to realize I don't have what it takes to do what is required to be a faithful father to my children. I need the help of Christ. And so what I need to be very focused on is remembering that, staying humble, and getting them connected to the one who does have everything they need, which is Jesus himself. And that's what we see Jairus doing here. He didn't take her to him, but he went and got Christ and brought brought him to her. He was facilitating that connection. 
Dads, you hear what I just said? He was facilitating that connection between his little girl that needed something he couldn't provide and the one who could provide it. Every single one of us is in that spot. Our kids may not be dying, but they need Jesus desperately, just like we do. And so we, our, our humble request to the master needs to be, Lord, teach us how to facilitate that connection. How do we help in that process and get out of the way when it's necessary? Praise God. The truth is, guys, as much as I, as much as I like to think I could, I can't make my kids love Jesus and obey him. I can't make them do it. And so I have to humbly throw myself at his feet, just like Jairus did, and ask for his help. Lord, teach me how to, how to connect them to you. Teach me how to plow a path and then send them along it. How to facilitate. How to be a part of the process, but not think I'm going to be the end-all, be-all. I'm not their God. I've got to make sure I don't want to be. I don't even want to be their greatest hero. I want them to, I want to reflect the love of God to my kids to the degree that they will not struggle when they begin to make the connection that God is our perfect heavenly father. I want to do the best job I possibly can to not only describe verbally for them the beauty of the gospel, but live it out with my actions. I want to do all that to the best of my ability, but I, I have to be humble enough to realize I won't accomplish any of that to any degree of efficacy without the help of Christ. I don't have what they need. And so i got to throw myself at the feet of the one who does and ask for his help. Here's the beauty. He's promised me if I'll do that, he'll help me. And so that's where I find myself. That's why I was all messed up singing about how much I need Jesus earlier today. I just know it with my kids, my wife, with this church, with everything God's called me to do. I need to, I need to understand what Jairus understood. We need him. It's amazing how simple stuff can go deep if you start peeling off the layers, you know what I mean? And that well's deep. We need him. Such a basic premise, something we all would nod to. But how far does that go? Man, it goes far. We need him. The third thing I want to observe, uh, there's so many other things, we just, just time doesn't allow, is that Jesus gives hope to all. Jesus gives hope to all. And we see this from here in this way. The, the truth is we all need Jesus. Both those who are well-respected and outwardly religious, like Jairus, the synagogue official, people that seem like they have it all together, they're respected, um, but also those who are rejected socially and despised, whether that's a result of their own failure and sin and, and just kind of putting themselves in that ostracized position, or whether it's, it's the unfortunate, bigoted nature of sinful humanity that just kind of forces them to those outer edges. We see, I told you there's more contrast to see here, and I believe there's intentionality in, in God orchestrating these events all right next to each other. And, and there's, there's real purpose here because we have Jesus in the midst of helping Jairus, the synagogue official, one of the most highly respected guys in that community, right? He's, think, think well, not politician. I shouldn't have said that. Um, think, think of a highly respected, integrity-filled religious leader, somebody that most people have generally good feelings towards. And then you've got this woman that runs into this situation, says she was hemorrhaging for 12 years, she had an issue of blood. Here's what we need to know about her. Based on uh, Jewish custom and, and based on even some of the ancient law from the Old Testament, she was ceremonial, considered ceremonially unclean. So what that meant was she could not be in the outer court of the uh, temple area with the other women. She could not attend services in the synagogue. She was not really even supposed to be in there around people. She was... Uh, likely left by her husband because of that. Uh, and she definitely should not have been in this crowd touching people, making them ceremonially unclean. And she definitely should not have been touching Jesus, who was a rabbi and teacher, and making him ceremonially unclean. And so we need to understand the incredible risk she was taking. First of all, this is part of how we see her faith in action. Uh, she didn't, 
she wasn't taking no for an answer. She was coming in and coming in hard, and it was either do or die. Uh, the other accounts in Mark and Luke, it tells us that it's funny that Luke records this, right? He's a doctor. He says plainly that she had spent all she had, all that she had for 12 years. She had, it had been squandered on physicians. And we, we don't want to over, we're, we're thankful for common grace and, and uh, the medical sciences, and, and some people take that verse and, and go way too far with it. God sometimes heals through common grace means of uh, medical technology. I believe God gave us that knowledge, so praise God. But in this woman's specific situation, she had gone every other place she could possibly go for help and not found it. This was the last straw for her. This was her only hope. And it's very interesting. You've got this guy that, that, that's a synagogue official. He would, he would know the law very well. He would be very religiously educated. And it's very possible that this lady over here, the, the way most scholars think, like the way she's reasoning, that this probably was not a fully formed faith in Christ based on his character and nature, or he, her even really understanding who he was, this was probably kind of a superstition. Like, there's a healer, and if I can just touch the edge of his clothes, then, then I'm sure I'll be healed. And so part of what that speaks to is even that other idea we talked about, that she, it's not like she had all her theological ducks in a row, and her faith was fully informed by that, right? It was, it was just a mix of this desperation and she, he had healed others and she was at this point where she just reasoned to herself, if I can get to him, if I can touch the hem of those, those clothes, then, then I'll be healed. And, and here's, here's what you got to understand and here's what, what, here's what I'm trying to get you to be, be, I don't want you to be unsure or not confident in God. I, I hope that we address that, but I want you to be less confident maybe in some of the assertions you cling to. Because this lady didn't have it all figured out. She was a social outcast. She's the last one you would expect to receive anything. And God meets her right where she's at. However much understanding she had. However much faith she had in the thing. And then Jesus turned around and looked at her and said, Woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. What's the point of all that? We all need Jesus. That's the point of that. We all need the truth of the gospel. You've got Jairus, the highly respected guy with all of his stuff together, but he hit a point where he realized he didn't have what was needed. And then you've got this woman over here that is as, as far to the outer fringes of society as you could get. And Jesus met them both. Jesus was the answer for both. Both needed him just as much. And Part of what Jesus did is come and, and smashed and ground into dust this idea that some people need him, right? Because most of us could look at this woman with the, the hemorrhage, the issue of blood, and say, yes, you need some help. But a lot of people would look at Jairus and figure, you know, this guy's got it. He's okay. He's figured it out. Some people would look at the woman with the hemorrhage, the issue of blood, and think she's, she's so far gone, she's so far out there, she can't be helped. And some people will be looking at the other guy and think he doesn't need help. Everybody needed Jesus' help. Where are you on that spectrum, friend? Where do you see yourself? It really doesn't matter because what I'm presenting to you are the bookends of human society. The most respected and the least respected. The, the one that supposedly had it the most together and the person that was so destitute and broken, she had one shot and it was to try to push through that crowd and hope to just touch his garment as it went by. It was her last chance. That's where she was at. They all needed Jesus. Friend, every single one of us is in the same spot. It doesn't matter where you see yourself on the socioeconomic ladder. It doesn't matter where you see yourself as far as respect and success. Whether you're all the way down or you're all the way up, Every single one of us is in desperate need of Christ. Every single one of us, the playing field is leveled, right? It says elsewhere in scriptures that in the scripture now that because of what Jesus has done, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. All of those distinctions that we build up, those constructs, they've all been completely laid waste to by the power of the gospel. And we are all left with this understanding that none of us is perfect. None of us is holy like God is. Well, what if I have a lot of money? It doesn't matter. Well, what if I got nothing and I'm totally broke? It doesn't matter. We're, on this, we're looking eye to eye. We're standing on the same plane. Every single one of us is in desperate 
need of Christ. Every single one of us, Romans 6.23 is true for us. The wages of sin that we all have, our imperfection has brought death. Spiritual death is the condition of all of us, and we all desperately need Christ. Every single one of us is in desperate need of the gospel. We saw some of the beauty of Jairus' clear love for his daughter, and we've learned, we learned some principles for us that are earthly fathers about our incredible need for Christ in that task. And so there's, there's, there's some beautiful instruction there, but I think there's also something here that's beautiful and profound for those of us that maybe there's Father's Day can be difficult, right, for various reasons. For some people, uh, Dad wasn't there at all. For some people, it was worse. Dad was there, and it was real bad. There was not a reflection of God's goodness and love coming from that person in your life, right? It was, it was quite the opposite. And so for some of us, there's difficulty there. So I think for, there's beauty in this for us to, to, to see an example of, of how a godly father should react in humbling ourselves before Christ. But I think there's also hope for those of us that may struggle with that because we didn't get that. We, that. That wasn't our experience. I think it's beautiful. Verse 22, Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Go through your whole Bible. Every single person that Jesus addressed, this is the one time, one time, he addresses a woman as daughter. And what made her a daughter? Did they have a biological connection? What's Jesus talking about? We, we see the father heart of God. This is what I'm talking about. You see this in these miracles. You see this as the Savior comes and interacts with these people in these desperate situations. The heart and the character and the beauty of the Father, it's coming, it's being expressed through Christ. He can't help himself as he turns to this woman and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. See, it's by faith, dear friends, that we are brought into the family of God and much of the pain of Maybe our biological dad's not doing the greatest job. Maybe they weren't a gyrus. <laughs> Maybe they didn't realize they didn't have it all together. Maybe they didn't run to Jesus for help. Maybe they weren't there at all. There's countless different ways that fathers can fail at this. And I think we need to say, however, no dad is perfect. Let's go ahead and put that out there. But there are varying degrees on whether or not a dad's even trying to love their kids in such a way that it will not be harmful uh, in, in their ability to be able to relate to God as Father. And so there's something beautiful in here for those of us that struggle sometimes with relating to God as Father. We see here in this expression of Jesus as, as he refers to her in the midst of her pain, but also as he's rejoicing with her in the midst of this healing. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Dear friend, today, this was a physical healing issue. But for many of you today, what you've yet to hear from God is daughter or son, your faith has made you well in regards to the issue of sin because you've tried like she did to go to a bunch of different other places. She exhausted herself searching for an option to heal this pain that had caused her, this issue that had caused her so much pain and separation and difficulty and darkness. She'd been to this doctor and that doctor, and we go to, we go to material possessions, and sometimes we go to substances, and sometimes we go to illicit relationships, and we go here and there, and we find ourselves in the exact same place she found herself, exhausted and broken, and you've only got one shot. You're in the same place she was. You're going to have to humble yourself, and you're going to have to submit yourself, and you're going to have to reach out to Christ and receive by faith what it is he has to offer, which is grace and mercy and hope. And the only way your heart and soul is going to be made well, dear friend, is to submit yourself to Christ. By faith, reach out for what it is he has offered freely, which is the gift of salvation, reconciliation with God, redemption. He is willing if you will trust him by faith to give you the righteousness he earned and he'll take all of your filth. And some of you, 12 years is a long time to be a social outcast, to do things a certain way. I deal with this all the time when I'm in the streets and I'm, I'm ministering to homeless people. There are people that be out there five years, 10 years. For some of them, it just, it becomes 
a way of life, and, and they, they can't even remember what it's like to not be that way. And for some of you, I know this, this woman that day, something about Jesus sparked in her. It ignited again this, this flicker of hope that if she could get to him and just touch the edge of those clothes, that, that she would be healed. And, 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 and I hope today, if you've been that person that you've just settled in to that darkness, you've decided that's just the way it's going to be, then whatever it was, the power of the Spirit working in that woman's heart that brought her to a place of hope, I'm praying to God that today he will move upon your heart in the same way and you will reach out in faith and be made well and be made a daughter or a son of God that's available to you today. That hope is there for you. And dear friend, maybe you are well established in the family of God and you know by faith you have received the beautiful promises of God and you, you, you know that you are a daughter or son by grace, then I would hope that you can simply rejoice in this proclamation of his gospel and that this would be for you a motivation to go and share it because there are so many people like her. There are so many people broken and lost. There are so many people without hope. And you carry, you carry the answer to that hopelessness. If you know the gospel, then you're called to take it. It is the remedy. It is the cure for a sin-sick world, friends. So please don't hold back. Please, with excitement and passion, share this beautiful truth that you've been given freely to the glory of God. May we be a people who joyfully surrender our illusion of control and trust God's good character instead. May we be a people who realize our need for Jesus no matter how broken or successful we seem. And may we all rejoice in the truth that we have a perfect, eternal Father who loves and cares for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you for these twin miracles so closely intertwined all in one account. I thank you for the beautiful contrast contained within them. That we see someone respected and revered by his culture and someone cast away and ostracized and we see you bringing an answer of hope and healing to both. Thank you, God, that our need for you is universal. Thank you that every single one of us, when we understand correctly what it is your word teaches, we, we come humbly and we bow before you and we declare our need for you and I thank you, God, you don't reject us, you don't push us away, but just as you receive these humble outcries of faith, you'll do the same with us. I thank you, God, that you don't belong in a box, that you'll never stay in one. I thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign and you do things the way you see fit. I thank you that you're not under my command, but I'm under yours. Lord, humility demands of me that I realize that that is the best place for me to be in humble obedience to you. Thank you, God. Please keep us in a place of remembrance. May our eyes always be focused on the fact that you are higher than we are. Your thoughts are far greater. You know more than we do. You exist outside of time. You are not limited like we are. So God, please help us not to trust in the answers we construct and then give you the solutions we present to you to solve the problems. May our trust not be in that, but God, may our faith and trust be in your good character, your proven character, your proven faithfulness, and the precious nature of your promises, God. You are faithful and you are good. You've proven it. Lord, may we rest and trust that. Lord, please help our faith. May we trust you more tomorrow than we do today. Lord, I pray for the fathers. I pray for every single man that has been saddled with the responsibility of reflecting your goodness and love to little people and training them and how to know you and love you. God, I ask you to anoint them. I ask you to fill in every single gap where they're lacking. God, I ask you to give them exactly what they need to be able to fulfill that noble task for your glory and for the good of their children. Lord, I ask that you would help all of us, whether we have biological children or not, help us to understand your heart is the heart of a father. And when we become like you, that father's heart is in us. And so God, help us to not only love and care for and seek to lead 
our own biological children, but God, may we be gospel fathers. May even those that don't have their own children look for opportunities to father by the power of the Spirit. Lord, you said there's a whole lot of teachers, there's a whole lot of people that want to teach something, but there's not a lot of fathers that are willing to get in there and pay the price to sacrifice, to love and lead those that they're teaching. God, may a spirit and an anointing of fathers just rest upon us. And may that be for your glory. Lord, we submit all these things to you. Lord, we are on our knees before you. We declare our need for you. We are aware of it. and We rejoice in it. It's the best place for us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.